The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, church. How's everybody doing today? Yeah, looks like we caught a rare week where most everybody wasn't on vacation. Good to see all of you guys uh, this morning. Hey, um, if you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. We'll also take a look at Acts chapter 20 as well, um, if you want to plan ahead. So Philippians 2 and Acts chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, stick a hand up nice and high, wave it around as if no concerns were bothering you. And one of these kind men will make sure that they get one to you. If you don't have a Bible, that is a gift to you. And we pray that the Lord would use that to just minister to you, to teach you about his goodness, his grace, and his will. A couple of announcements this morning before we get going. First of all, just a big thank you to everyone who joined us Wednesday night at our first Wednesday service. I want to let you know that uh, out of over 250 people that attended, um, because of the goodness of uh, the Sweet Tea Express, which donated the food and then is donating all the donations you guys gave towards the food, towards Feed My Starving Children, a project that our own Jason Licato is involved in, um, we collected over $1,023 for Feed My Starving Children. Now that's good, right? Here's what makes that news even better. Because of the project and the way that that organization is able to um, build these meals at such a small cost that then go to places that are malnourished and stuff, that $1,023, which is good, but it's not, you know, it doesn't seem like a game changer necessarily, until you realize that that will pay for 4,650 meals that will go to malnourished areas. So that is a great thing, right? Really, really good stuff. So big thank you to Jason and the group. Thank you to you guys. And a huge thank you to the Sweet Tea Express. Um, for, not just for their generosity, but for their, those ribs. Whew. Man, can I get an amen for those ribs? Amen. A um, couple of other, other announcements. Uh, just to let you know, we will be having an outdoor service and baptism on July 31st. Um, coming up here at the end of the month. So you probably got a flyer about baptism. If you've never been baptized or want to talk to us about it, we'd like to meet with you in advance of that or at least have some discussion. So if you would just fill that out, either drop it. Well, the offering baskets already went by, huh? But the info table has a black box on the side. That is not a flight recorder. That is where you can actually slip those things and we will get in touch with you just as soon as we can. Another one, uh, family camp signups. Um, I was just told we now have 32 families already signed up for family camp. So um, I'm not sure what we'll do in here that Sunday. Um, There'll just be like six of us, but we'll figure that out. Um, But if you haven't signed up yet, that's August 18th through the 21st. Make sure you stop at the table on the way out and get some info on that. (sighs) One more thing, men's Thursday Bible study. Um, We canceled it last week and I have to cancel it this week too, because I just totally forgot. Um, I'm actually, and I apologize for this, um, but as soon as I'm saying amen and we're closing in in music, I actually have to split out of here right away because we have our um, Acts 29 lead pastors gathering in Long Beach. So I have a flight to catch. The timing of which is fantastic and clearly uh, God ordained. Um, because the two pastors that will be the, or the three pastors that are our speakers um, when we're down there at the conference is, of course, Acts 29 President Matt Chandler, who, as you know, pastors in Dallas, um, Thabiti Anwadwile, 
It's really hard to say, but he is a very godly man. Pastors in, uh, I believe, the Virgin Islands, if I'm not mistaken. He is a leading, outspoken, um, uh, he's a must-follow on Twitter, um, and is, is someone who is a leading, outspoken uh, um, pastor in the world right now concerning the gospel and race relations. He's going to be there. And then Pastor Leon Crump, who is an African-American pastor of a mixed congregation, Acts 29 Church, in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, all of those have been in the news a little bit this week, right? And so um, I, I just think it's awesome and God-ordained that these were the speakers that the Lord had put together um, to be able to minister to us while we're in Long Beach this week. And I'm really looking forward to that and would covet your prayers for us and our network um, as we move forward. So I apologize for not hanging out. It's Especially today, considering the topic that we're going to look at, I almost feel um, like a little bit of a chicken to talk about this particular topic and then split. But um, that's what I'm going to do. If you don't like it, uh, Aaron Havivian will be here to answer all of your complaints. And Aaron Havivian, I'm sorry, Aaron, I meant to say Aaron Beamish. Aaron Havivian, oh, I miss him. You guys remember him? I have to give him a call. Maybe that was the Lord. Um, also. So anyway, all that's to say, men's Thursday morning Bible study is canceled. This week, we will meet next Thursday morning at 6.30. And then one last announcement. Um, we somehow got uh, put into an announcement that went out throughout the whole community that we were participating in a church at the fair thing that goes on at the fairgrounds this year. Um, we are not actually part of that. And that was a mistake. The, uh, the, the people who put that to press contacted us and were like, really sorry. Um, we are not having church at the fair. We will still have church here as per usual, just to let you guys know that. Okay. So all of that's out of the way now. Um, we need to, uh, uh, I need to open in prayer um, more than anyone. And I, and I pray that you'll join with me in this prayer for your own hearts as well. Um, we haven't really faced this issue head on really ever here at Heritage. And we, this is, this is Southern Oregon, right? It's just a bunch of white people. This isn't issues that affect us. These aren't things that affect us. So let them deal with their thing. And we're over here, we have our thing, and it doesn't really affect us anymore. But um, I was talking to a friend about it this week and just talking about, man, this issue has just been really heavy on my heart. And should we talk about this? And how many toes are we going to step on? And what do we do about this kind of stuff as a church? And uh, my friend responded to me. He said, Jeff, um, with all due respect, this church didn't grow by you being a coward. He said, Heritage got the reputation of saying it like it is and letting the chips fall where they may and sticking to the gospel the whole way around. And so uh, why would you change? So today uh, we're going to look at some of the issues. We're going to talk about the greater issue going on around some of the, the news events that happened this week. But, but our goal here is not to analyze specific news events. We are the church of God, saved by the gospel of God, called to the gospel of God. So what we want to do today is try to understand how the gospel of Jesus Christ should frame the way we look at the things that are going on in our country. Because regardless of how you feel about those events, I'll tell you right now, the honest truth is our country is in a major, major precarious situation right now over race relations. Whether you like it or not, it is. And if the church doesn't have anything to say, who can so we're going to look at this today and try to understand that through a gospel perspective. And so for that, more than anything, I know my own weaknesses here. I'll admit them in advance. When I'm fired up about something, I'm an ENFP, which means I get fired up. Let's go. Let's do this. Let's talk about it. And I get passionate. And the, the, the fear or the tendency or the, what I hope doesn't happen because of that 
is that this thing that Jeff is so passionate about and Jeff is so fired up about come off as condemning or burdensome or pushy or accusatory or any of those kinds of things. That's, I want God to protect my heart and protect your heart from that, but I want to see what the gospel has to say about these things. So will you pray with me? And as I'm praying, just pray that the Lord would speak to your own heart in these issues as well. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you would bring wisdom. Lord, right now, it should be the cry of our entire nation right now. We don't know what to do, and our eyes are on you. We feel like we're going around this circle again of things that continue, Lord, to plague us. And Lord, there's deep issues, there's deep division, there's fears, there's animosity. There's polarization around these issues. But God, we here gathered together, this particular church, Heritage Christian Fellowship, are the redeemed bride of Christ that are unified by your Holy Spirit, God. And so I pray, God, that your spirit would minister to us this morning. I pray, God, you would break down strongholds. I pray, God, you would awaken emotion. I pray, God, you would give us grace and understanding. I pray, God, you would give us wisdom that both mercy and truth, Lord, would, would prevail. And I pray, God, that with this issue going on in the culture around us, you would teach us, Lord, your church on how the gospel affects this issue and how we, the bride of Christ, Lord, how we can stand for your gospel and your kingdom in light of the things that are going on. That's my prayer. And so I pray, God, you would just, by your spirit, miraculously speak through me, that you would minister to your people, that you would take the things that I believe that you have put burning inside me, and that you, Lord, would speak to your church this morning, and that things that aren't of you, whether they just be my passions or men's ideas, I pray, Lord, those things would fall to the ground. But, Lord, may your word be held. May your word be treasured convicting or not, comfortable or not, may we value your word. May we be bowed before you, our King. And I pray, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh, my rock, my King, my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So uh, I grew up in Asheville, North Carolina. A lot of you guys know that. So I grew up in the South, a place where... Uh, um, it was a very, very, very different area than what Medford, Oregon is like. Uh, the school I went to, A.C. Reynolds High School, was a very diverse um, high school. It had a very large African-American population. And we played sports together. We hung out together. But largely, um, the rest of our lives was quite segregated, actually. It wasn't purposeful. It wasn't like a, a, an institutional segregation is what I mean to say. Um, but we tended to just kind of hang out with our friends and, and the black guys at, at the school kind of hung out with their guys. We had a commons area at the school and the freshmen were over there and the sophomores were over there and the seniors were over there. And then down this one hallway where all these other benches were, that's where most of the African-American population would hang out, regardless of, uh, of their seniority, regardless of their grade. Um, they kind of hung out in their area, and we kind of hung out in ours. And racism was really, really prevalent. Um, I had a friend of mine, a really close friend, who used to love these terrible, terrible um, 
old country music songs. And I actually Googled the lyrics to remember them, but now that I'm standing here in God's pulpit in his church, I will not defame this temple with such horrible language. But they were terrible. Like some of the most disgusting, demeaning, racist stuff you could possibly imagine. And, but it was just a joke. It was just something we laughed over. One guy that I knew pretty well, I, I, didn't, I wasn't like real close with him. I only went to his house one time, and it was really just because we were playing basketball with friends at, a, at his neighbor's house. His father was in the KKK. And I remember going into his house to get something to drink that day, and he goes, hey, guys, look at this. And he opens up the closet, and there was his KKK uniform hanging there. And he had the purple one. So I don't know what you know about the KKK, but everybody wears white. But if you've got a colored one, that means something. You're like the leader. You're the whatever it is, the Grand Poobah, the capital K, whatever it is they called those guys, that's who this guy was. This is his dad. So this kind of racism was really prevalent. And even within my own family, I, I heard my dad tell black jokes. I heard my uncle tell black jokes. I heard my retired Southern Baptist pastor grandfather tell jokes about comparing monkeys and black men. I mean, you just, you heard that. That was sort of part of life. And it never really registered on me at all whether that was actually even wrong or not. It like didn't even necessarily occur to me. There were things that felt weird. Like I remember we loved the Cosby show. All white people loved Bill Cosby until that one episode about the Martin Luther King Jr. March. You remember that one? My dad didn't like that one. And I remember hearing about that. But overall, it wasn't really on our radar. It was never talked about in our church, ever. White, Southern Baptist, but predominantly white church. Never, never even brought up. It wasn't until I got to college that I started seeing some of these things. And I don't mean like learning from liberal professors how everything I'd been doing all my life was wrong. I mean I became friends, close friends, hang out with friends with some different African-American guys while I was there in college. And what I started to see was that their experience in life was significantly different than mine in areas that maybe weren't as noticeable unless you really got to know them and got to be around them. Uh, one of them, his name was Mark Hood. He was a great, great, solid engineer that I worked with. Another guy's name, Jonathan Wilkin. He was a great friend of mine who was part of NC State University, one of the nicest young kids in the world. He was insanely girl crazy. You couldn't go anywhere with him without him being like, hey, baby, what's up? Like constantly. He was insanely girl crazy. I loved him dearly. But I can also remember several times when Jonathan and I were studying at the library at North Carolina State University, and you're studying rather late. That's a pretty normal experience experience for a college kid, right? Leaving the library late to walk back to the dorms or your apartment or wherever, or your parking lot, which for us, the closer you are to campus, the more expensive parking was. So we parked way away from campus. And I can remember more than once campus security as we walk through campus in the dark of night saying, uh, excuse me, could you guys come here? Let me see your student IDs, please. And they never looked at mine. I'd pull it out and I'm holding it wouldn't even look at me. I'm, I'm not even there to the campus security guys were there, but boy, they would check Jonathan's. And they wanted to see his student ID and they wanted to see his driver's license and all the, and he was like the most, like the, he was almost Urkel. Like he was not, we're not talking about some guy that has some thug gangster kind of look to him. He was just a solid kid in school. So as I got to know some of these guys, I started realizing that these guys have a significantly different experience in a lot of areas than I do, even though my parents had assured me growing up that that stuff didn't exist anymore. 
Oh, they're just whining. They're just looking for free handouts. That stuff, racism doesn't exist anymore. That's baloney. And then once I got to know some guys, I started realizing, man, there are some things that, that go on that I, I was never really aware of. You wanna know when that really starts to sink in, what that's like? Go to Africa, white people. Go to Africa. Go with us to Imbarara, Uganda, where we fly into Entebbe, we get on a bus that we pray will make the drive, and we drive six hours into nowhere. And when you get into that city, you are the only white people for miles. And then you feel how different it feels. You walk down the street, everyone stares. People wanna touch your skin or your hair just because of that color and because it's different, they've never seen that before and you're uncomfortable and you're guarded. You walk by young men who to them, Americans are wealthy oppressionists and so you hear comments through the side of their mouth as you walk by. You don't go out at night, it's not safe for a white person. You start to feel like, wow, this is a little bit different here. This is what it feels like to be a legitimate minority, something that is so foreign to me for like my entire life. This is what I grew up in. But not Southern Oregon, right? We are open-minded Oregon, right? There's no racism in Southern Oregon. Come on, Jeff. You know what I discovered when I moved here? I, I remember... Uh, when I came here for my wedding, my groomsmen and I were, were sitting in a hotel room and there was this little pamphlet that had like a lot of the demographics of what Oregon's like and what Southern Oregon's like. And, and in it, it said, it gave a, a demographic breakdown. And at that point, African-American population in Medford was 0.75%. That has since dropped. We are now currently, well, as of 2014, that was the most recent I could find, 0.68% uh, of the population. And here's what that does. When you're not around someone to get to know them, it's really easy to buy into stereotypes that you see through media or television or get passed down from one person to the other. And so what I discovered when I moved to Oregon was that the racism here was at least just as bad, but it was different because the racism that existed in North Carolina was wicked and evil, don't get me wrong, but there was also still this, this strange thing that would happen where guys would like tell black jokes all weekend with their buddies, but then go to work on Monday and work with African Americans all week and get along and laugh and you would never know. It was this weird dualistic life. But then when I got here and I got to work in engineering and got to know different guys in the construction field and all this kind of stuff, what I saw was the kind of racism that is truly based. And I don't mean this demeaning at all. I mean, it literally, it was truly based in ignorance. They'd never known a black person before. They'd never known them. Everything they had learned, they had learned from movies. They'd watch films about like boys in the hood or gangster stuff and they would make stereotypical assumptions about everyone. And it, if you don't think that that exists, let me just ask you, if you as an Oregonian travel anywhere else in the United States and tell them you're from Oregon, what instantly are they going to assume about you? You're a pot smoking, hippie, liberal weirdo. That's the reputation of all of Oregon. It is the reputation of all of Oregon. And Southern Oregon overall as a whole couldn't be more different than that. But we as humans have a tendency to buy into stereotypes and caricatures. That's what we do. In Uganda, every American is filthy rich. Now compared to them, yes, 
Compared to them, yes. But what they mean by that is, we can do anything we want, we can fly anywhere we want, we can buy anything we want. They think we have a limitless, unending barrel of money, and I would like my barrel returned if anyone knows where it is, because that is not my experience, right? So before we even talk about anything that we're going to talk about today, we have to understand that there are always caricatures. There are exceptions to every rule. There are caricatures that we buy into. And the racism that I'm talking about that I experienced, or not not experienced at me, but that I found, if you will, in Oregon when I got here was a, a racism based on caricatures because there weren't really any black people around for them to actually get to know and know any different. And that goes down the road, everything from Asian to whatever. We are not a very diverse area. The Acts 29 network pushes diversity hard on its churches, hard. And that we, some guys were talking about that, like, Jeff, you, do you have any African-American leaders in your, in your leadership team or anything like that? And I'm like, guys, I can't make something out of nothing. Like, this is just the reality of where we live. And believe me, I would like to. Um, but, but we live in a very challenging area with regards to that. But the, the problem with that is that you can, you can develop preconceived notions about what people are like far away that never get challenged because you don't have anyone right in front of you to challenge them. So you can assume that blacks are a certain way, motivated by certain things. You can watch media reports. And just so you guys do know that the idea of unbiased media does not exist anymore. We all know that, right? Even, and especially if you're getting your news off Facebook. I mean, seriously, like you, you guys did see the news about Facebook. They, they build all your interest stuff and all the news feed things that you see based on what you are interested in and what you click. Advertisers pay them to do that. So what happens a lot of times on Facebook is you have people on one side of an issue arguing one thing, people on another side of an issue arguing another thing. They're firing missiles back and forth, but none of them are reading the same things. And so they assume that they're arguing from a, from a common ground. This study was actually done regarding the videos of the abortion stuff that was coming out the last couple of years. You had people on liberal ends of the issues that all they were seeing was, look how the conservatives are trying to manipulate and they're editing everything. And, all this. and then you had conservatives on the other side going, you're supposed to be four people. How can you not know this? And the reason is that neither, neither side was even seeing the same news in the feeds of Facebook. So you got to understand right off the bat, like there's no, there, there's no neutral media. So when we live in an area where preconceived notions can get passed down from who knows what sorts of biases, and we have no one standing in front of us so that we can bounce those things off to find out, do those things hold water? Are they really like that? It puts us in a place where we should instantly seek to adopt the position of humility that admits that maybe we don't know everything, just maybe. This is just the reality. Now, before we go any further about issues of race and all this, I want to make a statement that is, I want to make this as crystal clear as I can. Because right now, the big push in the local media is that this racial issue, this fight exists between African Americans and law enforcement. And so this is, this is where I wanted to be careful. 
Because I have really good friends. My next door neighbor is a cop, and we've hung out even a couple of times over the last week. Eric Melgren, retired police chief, part of his church. His son, current Medford Police Department. We've got DEA guys. We've got FBI guys here in this congregation. And what we can't do, and no one should ever do, is read into an issue that happens a long ways away and assume that that's exactly the way it is here. You shouldn't do that with race, and you shouldn't do that with any of the other issues as well. And so knowing that I can get passionate about this, I'm looking at this caricature that's happening on both sides everywhere, and I just, I'm like, I want to be careful. So, so here's what I want to say right off the bat. Here in Southern Oregon, for all accounts that I can tell and everything that I've heard so far, we are incredibly blessed to have the law enforcement that we have here in Southern Oregon. We are. We really are. Okay? Absolutely. Police officers have an incredibly hard job. It's dangerous, for one, and it's largely unpopular. Oh, when cops get shot in Dallas, everybody's all about the cops. Let's support the cops, blue lives matter, all that kind of stuff. When the cops behind you giving you a speeding ticket, you're usually not a fan, right? That's true, right? So we are really blessed with men that have really hard jobs that most of us don't want anything to do with. But we also have to understand caricatures in that world too. Because why in the world would we assume that every cop is good? Would you do that with anyone? Is every ice cream truck good? Is every chef a good guy? Is every black person a good guy? Is every pastor a good guy? Of course not. So I contacted Eric Melgren about this. Like I said, he's an integral part of this church. He's someone who reeks of wisdom and someone that I've been blessed to, uh, to be very close friends with for a long time now and someone I go to for counsel. And I just said, Eric, help me on this because I feel like I'm burning. I'm watching some of this stuff going on, but I also don't want to offend or, or buy into other stereotypes and promote something either and just help me with this. So this is what I'm seeing and this is what I'm feeling and I'm seeing vitriol on both sides. I'm seeing arguments go all over the place. I swear, as heartbreaking as it is what we saw happen in the news this week in Minnesota, in Baton Rouge, and in Dallas, maybe the thing I'm most heartbroken about, as weird as that may be to say, is going on to social media and seeing some of the comments that exist. I'll see people say things in response. Uh, Evan Wickham, friend of mine, part of the cohort that I'm in at Western Seminary, you know his brother very well, Phil Wickham, worship leader. Um, Evan went on social media on Facebook and he wrote something really simple. He just said, it's really hard to be a black person in America. That's all he said. And even Eric Melgren, I'm talking with him. He's like, of course it is. Yes, not easy. The hatred that came at Evan for making that statement was off the charts. It was unbelievable. And I saw things like, how hard is it to just lay down when a cop tells you to lay down? See comments like that. You ever notice that? Well, that makes sense. If they just lay down, they're not going to get shot, right? Let me just warn you in advance. The farther you are away from an issue, the more simple it seems. Okay, But the more in it you are, the more complicated it always is. You want an example that no one's going to argue with? Marriage. <laughs> right? When you're engaged, you got this. Why is this pastor doing all this premarital stuff about marriage? It's simple. We love each other. We're going to be together forever. Woo! <laughs> right? 
And then you get in it. Child rearing. Everybody has an opinion about child rearing. And it seems like half the time the people that have the loudest opinions don't have kids. So the closer you are to any situation, the more complicated it is. That's just a principle you should accept in just about every area of life. And I'm watching these people make statements like that. I'm seeing all sorts of just anger. Wait till the facts come out. You'll find out they deserved it. Really? That's what you want to go on record with? Wait till the facts come out and he deserved it? So many more. So many more. It's probably the most troubling thing of everything that we saw on that. So I contacted Eric and I'm like, hey, hey, I want to help me with this, man. And Eric, God bless him, he was just like, Jeff, you are exactly where I'm at. You're wrestling with the exact same things I am. And this is what he said. He said, there is no doubt that there are law enforcement departments or individual law enforcement officers all over the place in the country that are not serving the people the way that they should. He said, when I led the Medford Police Department, we we were aware of the dangers of power and authority. And so we even took biblical principles, though you had to hide them a little bit, but we would take biblical principles and try to teach these things to our officers to help them understand the dangers of the authority that you wield. When you're a police officer, you are not a an authoritarian who who goes around wielding his authority like some sort of bully. You're a servant. And so he sent me this document with all the different things that he wanted to seek to lead the Medford Police Department through regarding these things to just say, look, at the Medford Police Department, we understand just like Romans says that we will not esteem ourselves any higher than we ought. Principles that we've been studying in Philippians, considering others better than yourselves. And so Eric said, there is no doubt there are things that are going on. But at the same time, avoid the caricature because he told me story after story of of cops that he had been associated with, men that he had trained where they had been in those sorts of neighborhoods and heard back from the people there. Man, Mr. Cop, you're the first one that's ever done me right. So we have to avoid the caricatures, but we can't ignore the fact that some of these things actually exist. Eric said, is, are there some systematic racial issues in our country? Absolutely. He said, is it harder for a young black man growing up in some of these neighborhoods in the country to make something of himself than say, my kids? Without question. It's reality. And so we're talking about this. Like, how, what do we do with this? And, and this is what Eric said. It is inevitable when sinful men wield power, corruption is available. It is also inevitable when sinful men feel um, withheld from, when sinful men deal with everything from envy to oppression, that there tends to be violence, there tends to be outbreaks. All of the things that we're seeing, it's not issues of America being such a broken, a broken nation. It's issues of the fact that we as humans are broken people. We have sinful natures. This is the reality. He told me this one story, though, that can help you understand, though, because this is what I want to be careful to. I don't want to say these things in such a way that minimizes then the problem. Well, we're all broken. I'll give you some advice, um, white people. Uh, when, when you hear African Americans talk about Black Lives Matter, I don't care what you think of the movement or the politics behind it. When you hear someone talk about the fact that Black Lives Matter, let's just answer the, the basic statement. As Christians, do Black Lives Matter? Of course they do, right? But when you respond to that and go, well, every life matters, is that true? Absolutely. 
But here's what it can come across if you're not careful. It minimalizes the problem that they're dealing with. It would be as if your own family member has cancer and you're at a prayer meeting. You're like, man, my, my mom has cancer and I'm just wrecked and I don't know what to do. Can you, can you come? Can we just pray for my mom? And someone jumped in and said, well, we ever, there's all kinds of diseases. You're like, I, I get that. But right now I'm trying to share something that's burning in my heart. And so even though the intent to say every life matters may be good, just be careful, be sensitive. But we'll get to some of that in a minute. I kind of got ahead of myself. But this is, he, he shared a story to help understand how some of the preconceived notions that can come into your mind that you would never know were there. He said in New York City, they took some police officers in a training. This is an example he would use in his own training. And he, the instructor said, all right, I need one black cop and I need one white cop. Can you guys come up here for me in front of everybody? And so the guys came up. They were in civilian clothes that day. It was just a training thing. And he had them do this. He had the black guy stand there with his hands up in the air like this. And he had the white guy stand pointing at him with his hands like this. And he said to the congregate or said to the class, he said, okay, what is this scenario? What do you see? And all of them were like, well, it's a, it's a police officer making arrest. He said, okay, now you guys switch. And then it was the white guy standing like this. And it was the black guy going like this. And he said, now what do you see? And no one wanted to answer that question. And finally, someone said, it looks like a mugging. That's reality. It's really easy for us to allow preconceived notions and assumptions to sneak in. And so to act like these things don't exist is to actually ignore the story of Scripture. Because division and prejudice and all of these things have existed from the very beginning. And the notion that, well, he... he, he he deserved it. There's no systematic issues in our country, Jeff. It's just these, this one guy. Okay, well, the attorney general even did studies into the Ferguson incident, incident for example. Remember, the young black man was shot and killed on video. It looked really, really bad. Riots and everything came out of it, right? Well, the news a little while down the road started to come out about him. And what did they come out with? Well, he'd just committed a robbery. He was reaching for a gun. He'd struck a police officer. And so all sorts of people were like, see? See? But the report that didn't get as quite as broadly broadcast about that whole incident actually covered the area in general. And here's what they actually discovered. And I'm reading from the report. Eric Milgren sent this to me. It says this. The Attorney General's report also showed that Ferguson is a speed trap for people going nowhere. Six square miles of mostly black people, mostly poor, with 50 cops, almost all white. And the cops were ordered to milk them for every possible nickel by white city managers. The city was bankrupt. And they were actually ordering the officers, you get every fine, you get every penny that you can out of this community because we need the money. It says black people were further bled dry in a punitive cycle of fines and fees. Missed court dates led to arrest warrants, which left them increasingly incapable at having a chance at a productive life. And it creates a system where things begin to spiral. That is systematic injustice. That part didn't get portrayed as well. So what do we do with all of that stuff? And in our valley, is there any of those things? What about in our valley? Well, just a couple of, well, this is just last month. Did you guys see the story? There's a gal named uh, Christiana, I forgot her last name. What her last name? Clark, Christiana Clark. 
really well-accomplished, well-known actress at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. I got the chance to meet her um, not long after that event actually took place. Just an awesome, awesome, kind woman. She's out walking her dog, listening to music on her headphones when a guy on a bicycle comes and begins to circle her right there in Ashland. Ashland, open-minded Ashland, right? Circling around her over and over. And literally, this is what he said. He said, look it up. It's in the Oregon law books. I can kill you and I'll be back out on the streets in a day and a half. The KKK is alive and well in Southern Oregon. Caused such an uproar that neighbors nearby heard what was going on and actually came to her defense. That was just a month ago in Southern Oregon. Just a month ago. Here in our own valley. Is there institutional racism? Are there systems set up in place? I, I have no idea. I'm, I confess I'm completely ignorant to some of those things. I'm actually working with a gal here at our church to set up a lunch with. Because I have been told this. That the, the Christian African American population in Southern Oregon is bigger than I think. They just don't go to church anywhere because they don't feel welcome anywhere. And so that's a problem. So I, so I said, let, can we set up lunch with some? Can I just hear why? Like, what, what is it? What is your story? What's going on? I just want to hear the story. But here's the reality of it. We can argue these things. It's, it's so easy to sit this far away and see incidents going on over there and then take to Facebook with opinions. And never having talked to anyone about it. And get our news off of, new, we'll, we'll learn about racism by only listening to white people that don't live in racially challenged areas. That's not a great idea. Here's the truth of the scriptures as I see it. Division, hatred, human against human, has been part of the human experience from the very beginning. From Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin against God. They take of the fruit that they weren't supposed to. And the division that occurs happens instantly. There's division them from God. There's a separation from God that we're fully aware of that is part of our sin. That's why we needed Jesus, that he could reconcile us back to God the Father. Amen? But there's also division between even Adam and Eve. The only two people on the planet. If anyone had a shot at unity, it was them. And instantly, pointing fingers, throwing one another under the bus... Blame, it was you, it was you. Within that same, the very next generation, their children, you have brother killing brother. And what, when God comes to ask about it, what's Cain's response? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? Church, are you your brother's keeper? Maybe a better question is who is our brother? But we'll get to that in a minute. But here's what we see in the Bible. We see that happen. And then from that point on, as the story begins to unfold, you guys know the story. Abraham is selected and God says, hey, Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless all nations. Who's Abraham? He's a nobody. He's a moon worshiper. But God chooses him, sends him to a different land. And then when you follow the story of Israel, our story that we cling to, what's the story? It's the story of an oppressed people over and over and over. It, the Bible, if you look at it, it's, it would be like getting an American history book that was written by Native Americans. That's the Bible. 
It's written by those that were oppressed. And even the few times when Israel was the power at hand, we see the effects of what Israel is doing through the eyes of those who are maligned. Even the prophets come to Israel and they say, you're living high on the hog, you're living fat, you have no mercy to those that are being oppressed. You have no mercy to those that are struggling. And for that, judgment comes. And what's the judgment? They go back into oppression. They're taken into exile. The Babylonians, the Assyrians. We see this over and over We see, even in Christ's day, the Jewish people were incredibly racist. I don't know if you know that. They were incredibly racist. Anyone who was not a Jew is referred to as a Gentile, and they had nothing to do with them. They were hated. And that doesn't even get into the Samaritans. The the point of the story of the good Samaritan is that Jesus intentionally chose someone that the Jews hated the most. When he's telling the story of this Jewish guy that got uh, ambushed and beaten and is struggling and needs help, and he talks about the priests that went by, he's talking about these people that went by. When he says, but then a Samaritan came, that would have evoked, what? No. Come on, man. Like he's intentionally reaching to a racially charged situation to say, this is how we love our brother. And man, the story of the early church, you ever wondered why Paul's always writing to the early church and saying, fight for unity? You know why? Because think of the culture at the time. You had Jews who hated Gentiles. You had slaves and free men, and there was animosity between them. You had masters of slaves and hatred. You had all these things. And then you had women. Like everyone thought they were better than women. And suddenly the Holy Spirit comes and the church exists. And now all of these people are worshiping together in the same church. You think issues came with that? You think there were some, some inherent prejudices and divisiveness that tendencies in the physical flesh that didn't come to bear in some of those situations why in the world do you think paul's constantly fight for unity love one another fight for unity absolutely that would have played into some of those things consider peter we love to talk about peter because peter makes us all feel better about ourselves in the bible right so here's peter who preaches the first post-resurrection sermon and he stands there And he begins to speak this sermon about the Pentecost had just happened. The Holy Spirit came and all these people from all these lands that speak all these different languages, suddenly everyone can understand them in their own tongue. There's this miracle happening. It's a miracle, by the way, that if you go all the way back to Genesis 10 and the story of the Tower of Babel, where God confuses the tongues and separates people, we see an incredible picture of how the Holy Spirit brings unity back together. Suddenly the languages that have been scattered through human issues are now being gathered together because the Holy Spirit has come. And Peter's saying, hey, this is the promised Holy Spirit that you've been waiting on. He preaches this incredible message and 3,000 people get saved in that instance. Good thing Peter was saved of all of his racial prejudices, right? No. 15 years later, 15 years later, comes the story of Cornelius and the dream where God sends Peter to go see a Gentile man. A Gentile man. God, are you kidding me? Gentile man. And I, I just want you to look at the words that Peter uses so you can understand how I'm not, I'm, I'm not grabbing some story and making it fit what I want to talk about. I want you to see what Acts chapter 10 has to say. In Acts chapter 10, After the back and forth and the dreams and the sheet and the animals, if you don't know the story, go back and read it. It's amazing. But 
But the Lord calls Peter to go see this guy named Cornelius. And Peter finally comes. And it says, so Peter makes his way in there. And in verse 24 of Acts chapter 10. On the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. That's key. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. And Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. See, Peter's humble, he's got it together. I'm nothing special, come on, stand up. He looks humble for a second. That's Peter's life, by the way. He looks so good, and then you're like, oh, you blew it. So, so this is Cornelius, has come outside to greet Peter. But inside Cornelius' house is who? A packed house full of Gentiles. All of Cornelius' friends and relatives, they're all there. And Peter walks in, and what's his opening line? He said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Peter! That's your opening line? I really shouldn't be here with you. I mean, he's confessing national prejudices that exist right there. And look what he says. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. That's racial language. Saying God has told me that I should not call any person common or unclean. First of all, what does that tell us? What did they call them at that time? Common and unclean. And Peter's saying, but, but God's opened my eyes. God's, God's changed me. God's shown me something. How many of us would, would seek to fight through our own preconceived notions or our own experiences, or and I mean this respectfully, our own ignorances, and say, God, will you open my eyes? Will you show me the way that you showed Peter? What we see is even through scripture, throughout scripture, throughout history, throughout even American history, racism and division absolutely exist because sin divides. Sin creates selfishness. Sin fosters hatred. Sin has set brother against brother. This is what sin does. So does racism exist in Southern Oregon? Of course it does. Why? Because people exist in Southern Oregon. As well as anywhere else in the world. And so for the last week, really even two weeks, I've, I've watched some of these things happen. I got the privilege a few weeks ago to go to the Juneteenth celebration at, at Southern Oregon University. I say this and I'm certain almost no one in this room has any clue what I just said. Most white people have no idea what Juneteenth is. African Americans do. When the Emancipation Proclamation took place that outlawed slavery, it wasn't like today where that news hit Twitter and all the slaves got released that day. It took over two years before news reached what at that time was Galveston, Texas, the furthest outpost of the Union at that time, when the army came in with news, the slaves had been released, let them go. Over two years, people were serving on plantations as slaves when they had actually been set free and they just didn't even know it. There's all sorts of rumors why, that people wanted to let them get one more harvest in before they got all their labor out of there. But whatever the case may be, Juneteenth is a celebration amongst the African-American community that should be part of all of our community to celebrate the fact that we ended institutional slavery in our nation. And the Oregon Shakespeare Festival every year does a great job. Um, our own Monisa played a, a, a huge role in playwriting and doing some of the stuff. It was just a really moving, awesome time. 
And so I saw that and I'd posted some stuff on Instagram about that and I talked to some other people and then that stuff happens last week. And so then I'm seeing all this stuff on social media. People that I know, people back home making comments that were incredibly insensitive or judgmental and there's these missiles going back and forth. And I felt myself in that position, like, man, I I feel like I'm in a really weird place. I feel like I'm being pulled in a certain way between all these different factions, all these different areas, like as if I have to choose a side. So what what do I do with that? I didn't know what I want to do with that. Here's what I want to say. I did choose a side. Church, we should all choose a side. And our side is the gospel. Wherever the gospel goes, we go too. That's the side we should choose. And and let the chips fall where they may. Churches in so many places, as they've seen that these become politically hot-button topics, a lot of times we tend to shy away from them because they're hot-button. And we know people, we can think of people right now, some of you in this room are boiling that I'm talking about this. I know that. But even Martin Luther King said this during the civil rights movement. He said, in the end, we won't remember the voices of our enemies. We will remember the silence of our friends. And if the gospel of Jesus Christ that exists to set us free can't speak to oppressions and slavery and things like that, then what can it speak to in our lives? So we have to be, no matter where you get your news, no matter who you like or listen to, if you are part of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have to be on the side of the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of these sorts of issues. So what does the gospel tell us about this issue? I got nine things, and I actually stopped because I think you could get lots more. But there's nine things I want to quickly go through with you that I want you to please write these down, meditate on these, ponder these, but I believe these to be really, really important because here's the reality of it is. Our text today, by the way, which we haven't even read, is in Philippians 2. You guys remember where we are? You're to esteem others as better than yourself. You're to be humble, just as Christ, who turned down his position of preeminence, he put his privilege aside, humbled himself, came to earth, and died for us on the cross. That's what he's talking about. It's the context of Philippians chapter 2. And the verse that we would be at today would be Philippians 2.14, which says this, Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. Without blemish, look, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. In the midst of the crooked and disgusting things we see going on in society all around us, the church has been given the gospel of Jesus Christ through the humility of Jesus Christ that we might hold that gospel out as a light to the world. So with that in mind, When we see the issues that are going on in Dallas, in Minnesota, in Baltimore, in Ferguson, in Ashland, what does the gospel inform us on how we should view these things? Number one, the gospel shows us that God, without question, values minorities. Without question. Think of who he chose in scripture. He went to Mary, poor, single mom. He he went to shepherds. Do you have any idea how hated shepherds were? He went to them first with the birth announcement. The whole story of Israel is one of constant oppression and attack. 
slaves. The, the Bible even teaches us that in the book of Revelation that in that day when we are all gathered together, the kingdom of God and the very presence of God, what does it say? That we will be there every tribe, tongue, and nation. God values all people, especially or including, or there's clearly his hand upon the minority. Even why the, the church has, has charges to it, that we're to reach out to the orphan, we're to reach out to those who can't stand up for themselves. God values minorities. Number two, the gospel teaches us that Jesus humbled himself. He willingly gave up his privileged status to save those that didn't have it. Now, we may not be in a place or have a position to do that, but I'll tell you how that humility can come into play. It can start with this, admit you don't know it all or see it all clearly. Humble yourself not to believe that you see these things from our mostly white position in Southern Oregon as we look on the battles and the struggles and the things that are going on out there. That, and that includes minorities looking at law enforcement as well. This is the call of the church, not of a race. That we should humble ourselves and admit we see through a glass dimly that the further away we are from an issue, the harder it is to see the complexities in that issue. The gospel teaches us that Jesus humbled himself. Number three, the gospel teaches me that Jesus became acquainted with our grief. This is a big one. Church, let me, if there's anything that you do to start towards any sort of step in these issues, do this one. Just seek to know. Think about it. The Bible tells us that Jesus was a man who was acquainted with sorrows. He understood our temptation. He understood our grief because he came and experienced it himself. But too often, we only get our news from a certain place. And we live in a place where it's a whole lot harder to bounce those things off the actual person. This whole idea of caricature that I've talked about. Seek to understand what's going on. Instead of being quick to judge, to throw barbs and darts and, and all these things over social media and to make excuses or to try to explain these things away from thousands of miles away, maybe the first step toward us should be to follow the example of Jesus Christ who sought to actually incarnate himself into this situation. So what I mean by that is like, hey, take someone of color to lunch one day and just ask them what life's like. Just seek to understand. Just seek to say, I... I don't see it. You can be honest with that. They already know you don't. See, I, I don't see it. I don't understand it. And there's even things in me that tell me it's not true. Can you help me? And just seek to understand what they're going. It's called empathy. Number four, the gospel teaches me that Jesus acts first. The gospel teaches me that Jesus acts first. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus didn't wait till Jeff behaved in such a way that I earned his empathy. He came for me before that. And we can watch protests that turn into riots and see people steal appliances out of stores and go, see? As if deserving it ever had anything to do with the gospel. But really quickly, in all these stories, we can go, well, well, I'm not going to feel a whole lot of sympathy for him. He had a gun that he wasn't even licensed to carry. He broke the law. It's what you get coming. That's not, no. We extend grace and we should seek to empathize with those who are struggling with issues regardless of, how they, uh, of whether we feel like they deserve it. Because that's the gospel in and of itself. Amen? Do you understand that, church? 
I feel like I'm totally up here alone. So you, got, you guys got this, church? You're already writing your emails to me, aren't you? Oh, well. I got a delete button. Number five, the gospel teaches me that I am a new creation. The gospel teaches me that I'm a new creation. I am not defined by my skin color. I am not defined by where I live. I am not defined by my nationality. I am defined because the blood of Jesus Christ purchased me and turned me into a child of God. So it's not an us against them. I'm not the white guy. I'm not the minority. I'm not the American. I'm the Christian. I am a new creation. And the Bible tells us this about that in, in Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and no female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so when I can look at some of these issues and it's not, it's not a me against them. Instead of them, I should be saying brother. I should be looking, remember when the church got shot up in South Carolina, what was it? Like our empathy as a church should go much, much further because we understand not only are those innocent people that didn't deserve it, but those are our brothers and sisters. We are not defined by our skin color. We are defined by the fact that Christ died for us. Number six, the gospel teaches me, it's along the same lines, that I have a new family now. Did my dad tell racist jokes? Yeah, but my dad now don't. And I'm part of a new family with new brothers and sisters from every tribe, nation, and tongue. That's real. That's true. Those are my family members. That's what the gospel teaches me. Number seven, the gospel teaches me that I live to display a new kingdom. This is what Philippians 2 is saying. In light of the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true, and in light of the fact that Christ died to save me, I now live as a light into the world. And this is what it means, church. The Christian's first response to the news things that we saw over the last week can't be angry barbs over the internet. Your first response should be to uphold the light of the gospel. The gospel crosses aisles. You know this. Think about it. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on, when you see the battles that are going on out there, know this, we have the answer. We have the fix. We've got it. So don't withhold it. Don't put that light under a bushel and hide it from those that right now need it more than ever. We have the gospel and we seek to live in a kingdom that upholds the gospel, that reaches out to those that are in difficulty and shows that God has come and God is coming to fix all that's broken in the world. That's what we have to stand for as a church. Amen? Five people. You can help me answer my emails. Number eight. The gospel teaches me to look at sympathy on those who don't know Jesus. Let's think about this now. Maybe even some of you, as I was saying that, I got brothers and sisters that are out there. You're, maybe some of you are going, how do you know that was your brother? How do you know that guy was your sister? I don't know that. So, I mean, I'll, I guess I'll show sympathy to him if that's the reality, but I, I don't know if that's my brother or sister. I don't really know what's going on with that. Well, if they're not your brother and sister, does that mean we withhold empathy or sympathy from them? No. We understand that they are made in the image of God, that God values their life. And if anything, we should be seeking to bring the gospel to them instantly in times of pain and suffering. So their sinfulness 
or their uh, lack of being part of the church does not exclude them from my sympathy or my empathy if I, te- if I want to live a gospel-centered life. It doesn't. If anything, it might qualify them more. Amen? And number nine, the gospel calls us to fight for others regardless of scorn, ridicule, or comfort. So I was thinking about it, like, why is it so hard to speak out about some of these things. Even some of us that know these things aren't good, that we know some of these things that we see happening are wicked, or we, maybe we know injustices are happening, but it's, sometimes it's so hard. Like I, I did a tweet earlier this week, and right before I had sinned, I had to convince myself to send it. That's me, and I get passionate about this kind of stuff. What is it about us is that? I, I, think, I think it's a few things. I think that we believe if we support African-Americans in this kind of struggle that it labels us as liberal. A lot of people believe that. That's a liberal cause, and if I stand up for that, that makes me a liberal. Or if I support, um, if, if I support them in this, that it means I'm admitting guilt myself. If I admit that racism exists, then I'm admitting guilt that I'm implicit in it, and we do not like to admit blame. And so sometimes we will refrain from pointing out injustices because we don't want to admit that the injustices exist. And maybe that's because it makes us feel guilty ourselves. Or to support them means I have to approve of everything that they do. If I support that movement, then I have to support everything that gets done. I'm, I'm, I'm writing off to everything. We are so polarized and it's so all or nothing. Or to support them might mean scorn from others. I can remember coming back home to Asheville, North Carolina, and talking with one of my cousins about the fact that this friend of mine, Mark, Mark Hood, who I mentioned earlier, had invited my wife and I over for dinner. And I remember what he said. You can't do that. You can't do that. You can't trust them. They will stab you in the back as soon as you turn around. Maybe we have friends like that. Maybe it's not that. I hope it's not that uh, um, in your face and that explicitly racist, but, but maybe we're worried that some friends on certain sides of aisles or whatever the case may be are gonna cause, that maybe there's gonna be scorn for that. But let me, can I leave you with an analogy to think through that even as I put this picture up, it might bug you, and I'm aware of that. And, and I just want you to know, first of all, before we do this, I cannot tell you how much fear and trembling went into this message. Because there have been times that I've gotten fired up about an issue and I've come up here to teach it and I share it out of zeal and it's driven people away and that's painful for me. Um, I love people. I, I, even one of my faults is I seek too much the approval of people. And so when these things happen and I see people I love leave, it is a deeply painful thing for me. Okay, So I want you to know that this is not Jeff throwing down some kind of gauntlet and you either have to be on board or leave. My, my hope is that we can teach towards these things. And if you're struggling with this, man, I would love to have coffee with you and sit down and talk some of these things through. Okay, So in no way did I come up here to try to teach something that is intentionally provocative to make people mad. Not my goal at all. It's from a heart of grief toward constant struggle. It's through people that I know in the African-American community that are hurting right now and they don't feel like anyone in white America actually gets it or cares to. So that's where this comes from. So here's the picture. Can you put the picture up? 1968 Olympics. You guys remember this? Everybody remember this picture? This picture ticked a lot of people off, didn't it? In the 1968 Olympics, this was a really, really big deal. John Carlos and Tommy Smith had just gotten the gold and silver in this particular race. And they stood there on the podium and raised fists with black gloves on as it was a, uh, it was, 
It was interpreted as everything from black power to the Black Panther movement to all sorts of issues. It was a absolute breaking of Olympic decorum. You are not allowed to do these sorts of political protests in the Olympics. You're supposed to leave politics out of the Olympics. Forget the fact that we did it with Nazi Germany doing all their Hail Hitlers right in the middle of it, right? But you're supposed to leave politics out of the Olympics completely. And these men from America in the middle of the civil rights movements came. And when they went up on the podium to get it, they lifted their hands up in the air. And it wasn't just black gloves. I don't know if you know that or not. Um, If you look, you can see on them there's a white circle. I meant to bring my little laser pointer. Uh, See this little white thing right here? That was a human rights badge that Olympic athletes were warned in advance they were not to wear. Um, Also, they went up with no shoes to symbolize black poverty. Um, Carlos had his tracksuit unzipped because he wanted to show solidarity with all workers regardless of race. Blue collar people that were struggling in life. And so he felt by leaving his jacket unzipped, he had to do something to try to show some sort of solidarity. That's what he chose. There's a bead necklace around his neck. That was to represent those who had been lynched and hung before the civil rights movement ended and had never been prayed for. And both of them to this day still say it was never supposed to be a black power statement. It was about suffering. It was about, it was about difficulty. It was about pain. And we felt like we, if we go up there and win, we win as Americans. But if we do this, we're isolated. And so they made the choice. But do you, do you notice something about this picture? What hand are they holding up? They're different, aren't they? Do you know Why? Because one of the guys forgot his gloves. And right before this incident happened, no joke, no joke, one of the guys forgot his gloves. And right before this incident happened, they were like, what do we do? We forgot our gloves. We only have one pair of gloves. And that's when this guy comes into the story. Anybody know who that is? Nobody knows who that is. In fact, if you go to San Jose State University, there's a statue of this event but there's only two people standing on the podium and that is a crime. This guy right here, his name's Peter Norman. He's from Australia. He lost to them by like a 10th of a second. He was a very accomplished track and field athlete and a fervent believer in Jesus Christ. And he had heard about and knew about some of the things that were going on in America at the time. And as he was in the Olympic village, he got to know some of these different guys in there and heard what was going on. And so when the two guys are going, we only have one pair of gloves, what are we going to do? He pulled him aside and said, dude, it doesn't matter. You put one glove on your hand and you put one glove on your other hand and let's go do this. And so Peter Norman went up there and stood with them as they raised their hands in this. Now, here's what's amazing about this story that no one knows. When this happened, you guys know the history in America. These two men were vilified for it, right? They were actually kicked out of the Olympics for it, but so was Peter Norman. And when Peter Norman went back to Australia, he was horribly persecuted and vilified for taking that stand there. In fact, though he repeatedly qualified for the 1972 Olympics, the Australian Olympic Committee refused to allow him to be on their Olympic team. You know what came next for him? Suddenly the thing he had devoted his whole life to was gone and he struggled. Depression, alcoholism, then came pain pill addictions. Peter Norman died dirt poor, a nobody in 2006. But I want to show you something amazing. Can we have the next picture? 
That's his funeral. Guess who those two guys are? They became lifelong friends. Peter Norman said, even through the difficulties of his life, the one place he found constant support and encouragement were from those two men. Those two men stood by him. Those two men stood with him. We think we know the whole story. We think we know everything that is to be known. And we think we can make judgments about things that are going on. It's not true. But the heart of the Father for the church is that we will not identify as left, right, conservative, liberal, American, black, white, whatever. We identify with the blood of Jesus Christ that was spilled for people like Peter Norman and for people with different skin than you. Many people with different skin color than you. And it is the call of the church that we would have a voice into these things. That we would love people as they're going through these kind of difficulties. And that we would not be silent when we see oppression coming because we're afraid of offending someone else. The church was so complicit in so many racial issues that happened in the 60s. And 20, 30 years later, they had to apologize for some of these things. They're still doing it now. The Australian Olympic Committee in 2012 issued a formal apology to Peter Norman. In 2012, church, don't wait that long. Seek to understand what people are going through. At least empathize enough to get the whole story before we make judgments. And understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ exists that we might cross aisles and love our brother. And even if you want to take the hard light stance, I don't know that that's my brother. Jesus said we even love our enemy. We are to be known by love, not our Facebook arguments. And I'm telling you right now in this valley, there are people, they may not experience even the same sorts of racism that exist in other areas. I don't, I don't know. But they're desperate for a church that's willing to widen its aperture of acceptance and allow them to come and worship with us. And we should do it because it's what heaven's going to be like. Every tribe, nation, and tongue with hands lifted praising God that he had mercy on ourselves. This is the gospel call to the church. But as Sam comes up, here's the deal. To do this, we need Jesus. Because we are really inherently selfish and self-centered. That's just reality. And left to their own, birds of a feather flock together. That's real. Our natural proclivity will always drift towards that. But may the Holy Spirit work in our lives and work in this specific church, I pray, in this valley, that we might accomplish what Paul calls us to in Philippians, that we might be a city on a hill in Medford, Oregon, that says God loves the African American, God loves the Asian, God loves the Native American, God loves the white person, God loves everyone. He so loved the world that he sent his son that whosoever believes in him, regardless of skin color or nationality, might be saved. That's the gospel we stand on. That's the side we're on. Amen? Amen. Will you stand and sing? Let's pray. God, before we even begin, Lord, I repent to you for my own prejudice, my own selfishness, my own 
Lord, struggles in these areas. Lord, all of us, if we're really honest, we have them because Lord, sin has broken us. We were created in your image to do good things, but our sin and selfishness has broken us. And I pray God that your Holy Spirit would continue its work of reconciling that which you've created. God, help us to see through things like skin color or even actions or nationalities. Help us to reach out and seek to understand. Lord, help us to be empathetic the way you were for us. Help us, Lord, to move first the way you did for us. So God, in this time right now, Lord, for anyone that's part of this church that would join us in prayer, I pray, God, you would just speak to our hearts. I pray first, Lord, that just as Peter said, you had showed him that he was to call no one unclean. I pray, God, will you show us if there are tendencies? Will you show us if there are prejudicial attitudes? Will you show us if there's judgment or pride or any of those things getting in the way? Lord, will you reveal this in our heart? And God, I pray, free us from it. And then God, even as we're going to sing, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. We need you to shine brightly through us. If we try to do this on our own effort, we will fail. But may your spirit create unity in this church and call people of every tribe, nation, and tongue to your church. We need you, Lord. Will you empower us today in Jesus' name.